Amen. How we doing? All right. My name's uh, Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm also a Super Bowl champion. Uh, it's my first time getting back up here since then. You knew I was not going to not mention that my Kansas City Chiefs won the Super Bowl for the first time in my lifetime, so I'm excited about that. Uh, uh, also just excited about uh, what, what's happening around here. Uh, Ash Wednesday is coming up uh, here, not this Wednesday, but the following Wednesday on February 26th. And, and I always like to kind of explain a little bit, because I know sometimes there might be some of you who haven't been around when we've done that before, might have some questions like, well, why are we... Why are we doing Ash Wednesday? Isn't that a Catholic thing or something? And, uh, and, and it's a church thing. It's a church history. It's an opportunity uh, to kind of enter into kind of the, the church calendar, the liturgical calendar of the year, to kind of follow some rhythms uh, that, that is, are there for us to just remember, uh, kind of memorialize. So we'll be talking about some memorials and, and commemorations in our passage today in Exodus with the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread a little bit. And so similar to that, right, these opportunities for us to enter into this rhythm of the year where we kind of enter into what, what God has done for us in, in the person and work of Christ. And so Ash Wednesday marks the beginning of the season of Lent. And Lent is the, the 40 days minus the Sundays leading up to Easter Sunday. Uh, season of Lent is, is oftentimes kind of symbolic uh, of the 40 days that Jesus spent in the wilderness uh, fasting and being tempted by Satan before he entered into his ministry. And it's a, a season often for us in the church of, of repentance and, and fasting and kind of looking ahead, preparing our hearts towards uh, the cross and the resurrection as we celebrate that on Good Friday and Easter Sunday. And Ash Wednesday, right, marks the beginning of that. And, and it's a day in particular where we re are reminded of the reality that from dust we were made and to dust we shall return. And so we encounter the reality of our mortality because of our sin. And so it gives us an opportunity to come with repentant hearts, uh, with hearts uh, knowing that, that we are marred by the stain of sin. But we also come with hearts knowing that the provision of God's grace is, is, is plentiful and we have hope in Him and, and we rejoice in His mercy toward us. So that's what we are, we're doing you know, with that. And so I invite you to come. Uh, hopefully you can join us on February 26th at 630 well, we love a, a good redemption story, right? A good story of redemption. We are drawn to them. And that is why when I heard uh, a while back that, that Les Mis was coming to Bloomington, I knew that uh, I, I had to go see it, right? I had to take Crystal to go see it. Um, and really, that in itself, Crystal and I in particular, going to see Les Mis is, is its own little redemption story. Um, I'm probably wasting a little bit of your time, but I'll give you just the highlights of that story. So about 21 years ago, uh, I, living in Springfield, Missouri, where I'd gone to college and I was working in campus ministry, Crystal was living there, a school teacher. We were not yet dating or marrying, and I was very certain that she was supposed to be my wife, and uh, Les Mis was coming to town, and I thought, I'm going to buy tickets, and I'm going to take this girl to see Les Mis and sweep her off her feet. And so I bought tickets. And I made these plans. And then it came to my understanding that my now wife was then uh, not my wife, not my girlfriend, but dating some bozo bongo player from the Christian band Cademan's Call at the time. That's another story. So I called an audible and decided not to take her to Les Mis. And I went with a friend instead. Uh, and so here, 21 years later, finally redemption. We get to go see Les Mis together. So that was our Christmas present. We were excited to go see. Um, the moral of that story is probably just avoid bozo bongo players 
And if you are an auxiliary percussionist in the room, I'm sure you are the exception and you're a great person. Uh, but anyway, but uh, anyway, Les Mis, based on the classic novel, that's not in the notes and I just shared that with you so you can know. Uh, Les Mis, based on the classic novel by Victor Hugo, uh, is of course a tremendous story of redemption. Uh, and by this point, right, the production has been here, it's left town. And uh, there's been at least a couple of film adaptations of Les Mis that I know of, that I've seen, uh, that have been out for a number of years. And so you'll forgive me if I ruin the story for you a little bit. Uh, I'm not going to spoil all of it, but I'll spoil some of it. Uh, but it's a story, right, of a, a convict named Jean Valjean, who is imprisoned for 19 years for stealing a loaf of bread for his hungry family, right? He's released from prison, uh, his, his sister's child starving. He's released from prison only to kind of experience a worse kind of prison, uh, to be given the, the papers of a convict and to take those papers with him wherever he goes, which means that there is little to no prospect for employment or livelihood, which means he's destined to either starve or basically be forced back into a life of crime and stealing again, to, to not starve, which will, in result, just lead him right back to prison. Um, and so one night, Valjean is taken in by a bishop who feeds him, gives him a place to sleep, and of course there's silver present there on the table, and, and, and he, uh, in the night, steals the silver and, and makes a run for it, only to be caught the next day by the police with a bag full of silver. His story to the police is, well, the bishop gave this to me. It was a gift. It's not true. He stole it. And so the, the police return to the bishop with Valjean and his bag of silver to confirm their suspicions that he has, in fact, stolen it. And what happens? What happens? The bishop tells the police, it's true. I gave it to him. But then he goes further. He says, but you, you left the candlesticks, right? The, the most valuable pieces of silver. You left those behind. You need to take those too. It's a beautiful story of redemption. In that act of grace, in that moment of grace, a, a man's life is redeemed, set free from a life of slavery to either hunger or crime. And in a moment, his life is transformed, right? In the words of the bishop, it's bought for God. It, it's such a vivid picture of redemption by grace. But, but why are we so drawn to stories like this, stories of redemption? Why do they speak to us and move us so deeply? As we move into Exodus chapters 12 and 13, we see another great story of redemption by grace in the Passover. And in this story, we, we see uh, why it is that we are drawn to these stories of redemption. For in the Passover, we see our own need for redemption. We're drawn to those stories because we all need redemption. And we all need God's gracious provision. And that's what we're going to see as we dig into Exodus chapters 12 and 13. We'll be reading uh, chapter 12, verses 1 through 14 together. I invite you to turn there in your Bibles on page 53 on those Bibles on your own. Let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. Hear the word of the Lord. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. 
And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roast it, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations, as a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you acknowledging that you are holy, you are righteous, you are just, you are justified in all of your ways. God, we come before you acknowledging that we are sinful. We are not holy by our own merits. And we stand in need of rescue and redemption. And we thank you, Lord, that you, you have made a way for us. Lord Jesus, that in your life, death, and resurrection, you have paid our debt of sin. You have set us free from slavery to sin and death. And made our redemption possible. You've accomplished it all. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would move our hearts to hear that good news today, to receive it, to trust in it, to cling to it, to be completely transformed by it, that you would lead our lives to honor you in every way. We pray this all in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. Amen. You may have a seat. Well, seeking to understand what what God uh, wants to show us and teach us today, we're going to ask three questions of our, our, our text here. Uh, first, what is, what is it that Israel needs to be redeemed from? Secondly, what is it that Israel is redeemed by? And lastly, what is it that Israel is redeemed into? Um, and in answering those questions uh, in regards to Israel in the Exodus here in the Passover, we should be able to see some clear connections for how, how God works in our lives as well. So first question, what is it that Israel needs to be redeemed from? What is it that they need to be redeemed from? Now, as I ask that question, those of you who've been with us as we've been walking through uh, the book of Exodus might be thinking to yourself, like, 
Has he not been paying attention? Like, does he, that, that, that seems like a pretty straightforward answer. Uh, Israel, or Israel clearly needs to be uh, redeemed from, from slavery, right? In Egypt, they need to be redeemed from that slavery. They need to be redeemed from the oppressive leadership of Pharaoh, from the oppression that they're suffering in the land of Egypt. And of course, yes, all of that is true. But I think we'll see that there is more that is being alluded to here than simply that kind of socio-political uh, redemption uh, that, they, that they need in that way. And perhaps we, we should be first really clear on what we mean by the word redemption. What, what, what does that word mean? What are we talking about? And redemption biblically refers to the action of saving or rescuing someone in exchange for a payment of some sort, a, a, some form of paying and removing of a debt. And clearly Israel is suffering under great oppression, and, and they need to be redeemed, to be set free from that slavery, from that oppression in Egypt. And, and clearly as you read the Bible, you see God's heart, His compassion and concern for those who are oppressed. When God begins to, to give His law to Moses, as you, as you read throughout you know, the rest of Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy in particular, He, he gives uh, so much of that legislation is concerned with the treatment of the poor and the vulnerable. You, know, you see that in, the, in those books, uh, in those chapters ahead of us in, in Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. And each time, the rationale for God's concern uh, and, and for the reason behind the laws that He's given uh, to protect and extend mercy and care, it is rooted in Israel's own experience of redemption from oppression in Egypt. But this is more than simply the tale of redemption from oppression in, in, in just the political sense. There's more to the story than this alone, and a big clue is found in the story itself. In Exodus 11, right, the tenth and final plague is announced, the death of of the firstborn. And then the plague takes place in Exodus chapter 12, verses 29 through 32. That actually happens then. God executes that judgment. But in between the announcement and the execution of that plague, uh, God gives instructions to Moses and Aaron that will exempt the Israelites from this plague of death. Instructions that we understand because of Exodus 12, 28, that the people of Israel obey and follow. They follow what God tells them to do. What is this telling us? It's telling us, you see, that this, this plague is not simply follow, falling on the Egyptians. It's not, it's not just falling on the Egyptians because the Egyptians are bad, the Israelites are good. So it's going to fall on the Egyptians and it won't fall on the Israelites because they're good, they're bad, they get the judgment, they don't. Um, no, this plague is falling on everyone, everyone throughout the land of Egypt, Egyptian and Israelite alike. The means of escaping it is only found in the instructions that God gives to his people through Moses. The feast that will commemorate this night of redemption will be called the Passover, why is it called the Passover? Because the just judgment of God is going to pass over his people. Not because they don't deserve it, but because he, he makes a means of, of, of providing a, a substitute to, to take their place so that they don't have to suffer the judgment that they deserve. Here's the point. The Israelites are not only in need of redemption from Egypt, even more they are in need of redemption from sin and death. That is what's being pointed to here. 
the Israelites, like the Egyptians, deserve the judgment of death that's executed in the Passover. And if this were only a story of political liberation, then Israel would be the innocent victims, and they would have no need to fear judgment. But the truth that is shown here is that the Israelites are themselves sinners, deserving of death. Both the oppressed and the oppressor stand side by side before holy God, deserving His just judgment. Both the oppressor and the oppressed stand in deserving of judgment for their sins and standing in need of redemption, in need of God's provision of grace, in need of a substitute to suffer the death that they deserve in their place. And this is why the Israelites are then to take a lamb without blemish and kill it and take some of the blood and put it on the, the doorposts and the lintel, right? The, on the tops and the, and the sides of the, of the door frame. They didn't need to put the blood on the door frame because, because God was unsure of who was inside, right? Like the, he didn't know, well, is this an Egyptian household or is this an Israelite household? I, I'm not sure. Oh, there's the blood. Now I know I'll pass over. That's not why they had to put the blood on the door frame. They had to put the blood on the door frame because God knew who was inside. There were sinners inside. That night, in the quiet, in the dark, the mourning and wailing starts from household to household throughout the land of Egypt and grows into this chorus as death is found in every single home. In every home throughout the land of Egypt, the death count is the same. In every home, Egyptian and Israelite, there is a corpse. The only question is, is it a lamb or is it a child? Israel needed to be redeemed, not just from the slavery and oppression of Egypt, but even more from the slavery and oppression of sin and death. And this says something to you and me as well. Ever since the fall in Genesis 3, where the first man and the first woman rebelled against God in their sin, every single human being, every single human life has been born as a slave to sin and deserving of the just judgment of death. And that means that like the Egyptians like the Israelites, like every other human being who's ever lived, you and I were born into slavery to sin and deserving of God's just judgment of death. And that's the real oppression, the ultimate oppression that you and I and every other human being needs to be redeemed from. And it's tied to you more deeply than those convict papers given to Jean Valjean. It follows you everywhere. You cannot outrun it. You cannot escape it on your own. It marks you condemned. That's the bad news. But the good news is that God, as he does for the Israelites here, makes a provision of grace to secure your redemption. Let's look at our second question and see what it has to say to us. What is it that Israel is redeemed by? Well, look at what God instructs Moses and Aaron to tell the people uh, to, to do in the Passover, beginning in verse 3, right? 
you kind of follow along there and following. We see that each, each man of the people of Israel is to take a lamb for his family. The lamb is to be without blemish, a year old male. All of the members of the community on the 14th day are to take their lambs and kill them at twilight. And then they are to take some of the blood and put it along the, the tops and the sides of the, of the door frame, marking the house where they will be inside eating the lamb. That same night they are to, to eat the meat roasted over the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. And they are to eat this meal with their belt fastened, their sandals on their feet, and their staff in their hands. And in doing this, the Lord, when he comes to execute his judgment on the firstborn of every household, he will see the blood on the doorframe and he will pass over his people, enabling them to escape his judgment. So what is it that Israel is redeemed by? Well, first we could say that Israel was redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. We've already stated that on that night of the Passover, death visits every home in Egypt. There's a corpse in every house. The corpse is either a lamb or child. The lamb serves as the substitute, as a substitute for the Israelites. It dies in the place of the firstborn. And if the blood on the door frames was simply there to kind of mark, you know, Israelite house, you know, non-Israelite house, if it was just a marker like that, then, then red paint would have done the job. The blood is a sign that a sacrifice has been made, that a substitute has been offered in, play, in the place. The blood of the lamb signifies that payment has been made by that substitute to secure the redemption of that Israelite household. And Israel is redeemed in that way, household by household, by the substitutionary sacrifice of the Passover lamb. The blood of the lamb makes a payment for their sin in their place. But where does this idea come from for this substitutionary sacrifice? Where do the Israelites come up with this, this understanding? It comes from God himself. God gives these detailed instructions to his people. Step-by-step instructions. He, he tells Moses and Aaron, and then he tells Moses and Aaron to relay it onto the people. In other words, God is making the provision for his people. He's making the provision of grace. This is God saying, that's right, I gave him the silver. But you forgot the candlesticks, right? This is what God is doing here. The sacrificial provision of the lamb is all his idea So we can and we should say that Israel is redeemed by God. They're redeemed by God. In Exodus 4, Yahweh there calls Israel his firstborn son. And God makes a provision in the Passover to preserve his firstborn son. Israel is redeemed by God. But but there's another aspect here too that's represented in the way that they are to eat this Passover meal, right? They eat it with their, their belts fastened, their sandals on their feet, their staffs in their hands which is to say they are to eat this meal and be ready to leave Egypt at once, to be ready to go. The reference to the belt may not make much sense. What does that mean? Why do they got fasten, fasten the belt? But, you know, the typical clothes of, of the Israelites this day were, were you know, a floor-length cloak 
not the most fitting clothing to make a speedy getaway when you need to leave with haste. And so what they would do is they would kind of tuck the cloak up into the belt and fasten the belt around that so that legs can move a little bit more freely when you need to get moving. And we're told in verse 28 that the people of Israel went and did as the Lord had commanded. And this points us to the reality that they responded to God's command with faith. With faith. Faith both in God's provision and with the, the, the efficacy, right, of that provision. That it would be efficient to accomplish the redemption that they need. That it would be efficient to, 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 to be their substitute. That the lamb would, would cover them from God's just judgment. And that God would indeed provide the redemption that he promised. Sacrificing the lamb, putting blood on the doorframe, preparing the meal according to God's instruction, eating ready to dine and dash, so to speak, is a sign that Israel's, uh, of Israel's faith and their trust in God's word and God's provision. And so Israel's redeemed by faith in God's provision of a substitutionary sacrifice. But the Passover was only a momentary provision. Only a momentary provision. Not a once-for-all provision. God will later give instructions in his law in Leviticus chapter 16 about the Day of Atonement. One day each year where annually the high priest will go uh, and offer a ritual sacrifice to atone for the sins of the people. A sacrifice that will be their substitute to suffer the judgment they deserve for their sin year after year. The reality of this, even in the Day of Atonement, in the Passover, the, the, the sacrifice, the lamb, leaves some unfinished business. Because clearly a lamb, even the most spotless, without blemish, perfect lamb, is an insufficient substitute for human life. The lamb is simply meant to point to our need for a greater redemption. And our need for a greater substitute. And more than a thousand years later, with the business of true redemption still unfinished, John the Baptist is there. And he sees Jesus approaching. And he says in John 1.29, Behold, the Lamb of God, who, who takes away the sin of the world. Peter. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, he speaks of our being ransomed with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. The Apostle Paul calls Jesus in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, our Passover lamb. Jesus is the true and better Passover lamb, right? The, the sacrifice is our substitute. You and I, we deserve death because of our sin. All of us We're marked by that. We deserve death because of our sin and our rebellion against God, because of our choice to live for ourselves rather than for God. But Jesus died in your place. Jesus died on the cross for your sins, to pay your debt of sin once and for all. Not every year, but a once and for all payment for your sin. His blood there was shed and placed on your life as a marker that God's just judgment for sin might pass over you. Jesus is the true and better Passover that redeems you not from slavery in Egypt, but from slavery to sin and the penalty of death that your sin deserves. You see, the ultimate redemption that you need has been made available to you in the substitutionary life 
death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He lives the sinless life in your place that you cannot live. And then willingly exchanges that perfect life for your sin and the death that you deserve. And he is raised victorious, displaying his victory over sin and death. You're redeemed not by a substitute, but by the substitute. And this redemption is not only God's idea, but it's God's provision. And not only is it God's provision, but it's, it's God's doing. Jesus is the Son of God, after all. The eternal Word, as John talks about, who is there present and active at the creation of the world, who is the second person of the triune God, eternally existent, one God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The cross is the self-substitution of God himself suffering in your place. God himself in the person and work of the Son dies the death that you deserve to make full payment once and for all for your sins. Even more, Jesus makes the sacrifice in unfathomable love for you. Jesus goes to the cross knowing full well what it means. He knows what is waiting for him there. And, and, and that, he knows that it means that he will suffer not only physical pain and death, but even more that he will suffer the full cup of God's wrath poured out for the sins of the world. And the cosmic suffering of the cross is far greater than any of the physical suffering aspects of the cross. That the, the, the full cup of God's just judgment against every sinner is poured out on Christ. And he goes there knowing that. And he goes there willingly. And he goes there, the scriptures tell us, for the joy that was set before him. He goes in love. And he makes your redemption possible by his gracious provision, by his substitution. And you lay hold of that redemption in the same way the Israelites did, by faith. By faith, trusting that, that he has paid for your sins. He's paid it all in your place, trusting that his grace is sufficient for you, no matter what you've been through, no matter what you've done. And, and I know in a room like this, there's, there's often someone or someones who are thinking things to themselves right now, like, well, you don't know my story. You don't know what I've been through. You don't know what I've done. There's no hope for me. Right? I, I've gone too far. I've run too far down that path. There's no way that God would have mercy for me. There's no way that, that there's hope for me. And if the substitute was just a lamb, then you might be right. But the substitute that took your place was the very lamb of God, the son of God, God himself in the person of Christ, spotless, without blemish, perfect. There is no sin that can outsend the grace that, that he provides for you in his life, death, and resurrection. So the question is, will you take him at his word? Will you trust him? Will you come to him today and receive him? He's done all that is required to secure your redemption. All of it. All you need to do is feel your need for him and cling to Christ in faith believing that his sacrifice was sufficient for your sin. But to receive him, 
We must understand. To, to receive this redemption in faith is to have your life completely reoriented and transformed. And we see that as we ask our final question in the text. What is it that Israel's redeemed into? And you find the answer to that question as we observe several elements here in Exodus chapters 12 and 13. As Pharaoh finally relents after the death of the firstborn in Egypt, verse 31, he tells Moses and Aaron to go with all the people of Egypt and their livestock to go and serve the Lord. That, after all, has been God's request as he sent Moses and Aaron time and again to Pharaoh. It's not, it's not just a request, let my people go. Right? That may be all you hear in the Prince of Egypt, but that's not the request, let my people go. The request is, let my people go that they may serve me. And that word serve, we've, we've talked about this in weeks past, is, is the same word for worship. It's the same word for worship. Israel is redeemed to serve and to worship Yahweh as their God. At the end of chapter 13, we're told that the God is, leads the people by a pillar of cloud at day and a pillar of fire by night. And this, this is not only the means of how God was leading his people, but it was also the symbol of his presence with his people. He redeemed Israel that he would be their God and that they would be his people. They were redeemed into a relationship with him as his firstborn son, as his children, that they would serve and worship and know him as their God. They were redeemed to remember God for for who he is and what he had done. In in these chapters, uh, we see God giving his people instructions, not just for this moment, but even how they're going to continue to commemorate and memorialize and remember this moment throughout all of their life ongoing throughout the the entire life of God's people. They're they're, they're going to continue to celebrate this. How are they going to commemorate and remember this redemption in the the years to come? Well, he gives them instructions for how to observe the Passover feast each year. And he gives instructions for the the Feast of Unleavened Bread. These two festivals that overlap and essentially take place, the heart of them takes place on the same day, are meant to help Israel remember different aspects of this same event. The Passover is given to commemorate uh, Israel's redemption from death as it reenacts God's passing over them in bringing his just judgment upon Egypt, while the Feast of Unleavened Bread commemorates their redemption from slavery as it reenacts Israel's hasty departure from, from Egypt. And in these feasts, Israel was to pass on, to instruct from generation to generation. Your kids are going to ask you questions, and then you explain to them, this is why we do this. This is what we're remembering here. This is what this signifies. In all of this, we see how this redemption was meant to completely transform and reorient their lives. This passage begins, verse 2, chapter 12 with God telling Moses and Aaron that the Passover will completely reorient their calendar. He says, this month will now be the first month of your year. This month is is changing some things, and now it's going to be the start of your year. In Exodus 13, there are also instructions given for how Israel will set apart and consecrate the firstborn ongoing. In other words, because God has redeemed Israel, they now belong to him. They now belong to him. They're not saved and redeemed just to like go on doing whatever they want to do. They're redeemed to be his people. 
They belong to God. The bishop in Les Mis tells Jean Valjean that, the, that he bought his soul with the silver. He doesn't buy his soul. He doesn't sell him so he can just simply be free to do whatever he pleases. No, he bought his soul for God, which is actually a greater freedom. It's actually a greater freedom. Redemption completely reorients your life. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 6, he, he says, You are not your own. But you, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your bodies. What does that mean? What does that mean? Well, I'm going to leave Les Mis here for uh, some moments and take you to another one of my favorite stories, Harry Potter, <laughs> right? And there's a moment at the end of the first book, I know there are a lot of fans in the room, right? Where, where Harry uh, asked Dumbledore why the Voldemort-possessed villain couldn't touch him, right? Without, like, every time he tried to touch him, and it just created this agonizing, unbearable pain. And Dumbledore's re- response was this, your mother died to save you, and love as powerful as your mother's for you leaves its own mark, not a scar, no visible sign, but to have been loved so deeply will give us some protection forever. The love of a substitute who who dies in your place, when you encounter love like that, it completely reorients your life. You cannot be unchanged by that. To experience that kind of love, to experience the wondrous, unfathomable love of Christ that we see in His substitutionary sacrifice for our sins is to have your life completely reoriented. You can't truly encounter the love of God in Christ and then just leave that and say, well, I'm just going to go about my own business and do things how I see fit. Thank you, Jesus, but I think I'll handle relationships in my own way. Thank you, Jesus, but I think I'll handle my work and my money in the way that I see fit. You cannot truly encounter the love of Christ and just go on living for yourself. And if you do, then you maybe haven't really encountered the love of Christ. To encounter his love, to receive his love in, in faith means that you are his. You belong to him. To Christ. You were bought with a price. But you see, that is true freedom. Not freedom in the way like our town thinks of freedom. Right? It's not the freedom I can sleep with whoever I want to want to tonight. Not that that's not that's not really freedom, though. It's just a different kind of slavery. Slavery to to feeling like I have to perform to earn people's approval of me. Slavery that it's all on my shoulders to make things happen in this life. Slavery that it's all on me to overcome the shame and the guilt and the fear that I experience as I walk through life. No, to belong to Christ is a greater freedom. It is to be free from fear and guilt and shame. 
For He's taken your place and He's paid for it all. He suffered the just judgment. There is no more need to feel shame and guilt for your sin in Christ. You're not marked by your sin anymore. You're marked by His precious blood. His righteousness clothes you. It's a freedom to know that even in the midst of our fears, that He is with us. And you've been set free from sin and death, those ultimate oppressors. You've been set free to truly live as you were meant to live for God's glory. And that means that the love of Christ will move you to turn from your sin and repentance and and long to obey God more as you seek to live for Him in every way. That you will long to serve and worship Christ with all of your life. That you will, the love of Christ will will move you to want to share with others about His self-sacrifice and invite them to know and remember all that He has done for them as well. How can we encounter love like that? Love that will enter in and suffer the the death that we deserve, not just physically, but, but cosmically, the wrath of God absorbed in your place. How can we experience and encounter love like that and not be moved to want to know all we can possibly know about who this God is? To know all we can know about what He has to say to us about how we are to live. What is, what is the life that he says is the life that we were designed and created to live? What does that life look like? What does he have to say to us about that? What does he have to say to us about how we are to worship him? What it is that he's saved us to do and to be. The reality of how Jesus has redeemed you by grace will, will shape you. We'll reorient you. We'll transform you to know that you are God's beloved child. It will press you in to know him and to be known by him, to, to live in relationship with Jesus, to be led not by a pillar of cloud or fire, but to be led by his Holy Spirit, moved by his love and his grace to live for him in every way. We, we must not confuse the order here, though. We, we don't try to get our lives together to prove that we belong to Christ and earn this redemption to show that we deserve it, but rather because we are loved by Jesus and redeemed by his grace, it will increasingly reorient our lives to live for him in every way, leaving no corner, no compartment untouched. If you have yet to truly give yourself to Jesus in faith. May the Passover enable you to see your need for redemption from slavery to sin and death. And may it enable you to see God's gracious provision of redemption in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And may you encounter his love and may may Jesus completely reorient your life to embrace him in faith and to live for him in loving relationship as his beloved child. And if you're a follower of Christ in the room, may the redemption that you have in Jesus continue to give shape to your life, to increasingly live in the freedom that you have from sin and death, to increasingly enjoy his love and to live for his glory. May we continue 
to remember our true and better Passover lamb that redeems us in a true and better Passover through his cross. And just as the Israelites, uh, God gave the Israelites feasts and festivals to commemorate and remember his saving work, so Jesus has given us a meal to commemorate and remember his ultimate work of redemption. The Lord's Supper is given, given by Jesus as a fulfillment of the Passover meal. Just as the redemption that Christ accomplishes through his cross is the fulfillment of the Passover and the Exodus, so his supper, the Lord's Supper, is the fulfillment of the feasts of the Passover and unleavened bread. And those feasts were meant to shape the identity of the Israelites. They were meant to shape their identity. And so this meal is meant to shape our identity as Christians. Those feasts were more than just memorials to what God had done, but they were reenactments, reenactments and participations for God's people. And in a similar way, we, we not only remember Jesus' cross and his resurrection, but, but we enact it in the breaking of the bread and the pouring of wine. And in this sense, we participate. We participate in it. It becomes our story and our identity and our living reality. And so we share in this meal as followers of Jesus, remembering Christ's body that was broken for our sin, his blood that was shed to, to, to redeem us from slavery to sin and death. And as we take of the bread and we take of the cup, we remember that in Christ, we have been set free. Set free from sin's tyranny. Set free from death's hold on us. Set free that we might live as God's children consecrated to him. Believers, you're invited to come forward as we continue to worship here today to share in this meal. We take in the meal here by tearing off a piece of the bread and dipping in the cup. We offer juice and wine to take as your, as your conscience leads you. There, the wine is in the glasses marked by twine. Uh, if you're not a believer in Christ, this is a meal that's reserved for Christians. It's a memorial. It's a remembrance. It's a celebration. It's an, a reenactment that's given to followers of Jesus. And so you don't want the symbol before you've first taken the real thing. And so this is an opportunity for you to, to take Christ in faith, to encounter his love and experience his grace. There'll be pastors and prayer responders here in the back of the room. We'd love to visit with you, love to pray with you about anything that you're, you're going through right now. But let's pray. Let's continue to worship. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you. We thank you for your, your gracious provision. But though we deserve your wrath, Though we are sinners marred by our sin, deserving of death, you are gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And you are merciful. And you, in your love, before you even created us, set in motion the plan to redeem us by sending your Son to live in our place, to die in our place, to be raised victorious, that we might share in his victory. By your grace, by your spirit, Lord, I pray that you open our hearts to embrace that rescue, that redemption in faith, and that you would enable it to transform us and keep transforming us day by day as we walk with you and learn from you and live in loving relationship with you. That you would be our God and that we would be your people.
pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.